Ontology, the Waystation of Red Pill Sanity Written by William Leo Translated by Deep L and a Human Read for you by Eric, Jenny, Mia, and many other bots Previously in the Ontology podcast series But because of the altered international situation After the Soviet withdrawal in the 1990s, the United States and the West decided that Afghanistan was no longer worth continued investment, leaving behind a political vacuum. To completely suppress the Taliban in Pakistan, it would be necessary to start a social revolution, but this is something Americans cannot do. Only pro-Taliban officials at the top of the hierarchy can be dismissed. So religious schools are allowed to continue. The breeding ground and the source of combatants were never eliminated. Season 4 The Islamic World and the Inner Asian Order Episode 2 A Closer Look at the Taliban The war on terror and the advent of the Islamic State have complicated the situation. The US did not withdraw from Afghanistan after getting rid of Osama bin Laden, and this of course was a major mistake of the United States, which consequently posed the Americans a challenge of establishing a modern nation-state in Afghanistan. The U.S. followed its customary formula of drawing up a constitutional agreement with the aim of transforming Afghanistan into a nation-state, but this is something that cannot be done. It is possible for Afghanistan to be split into four or five separate nation-states, but impossible to be one unified nation-state. Although it is more feasible for the Tajik population within its territory to merge with Tajikistan to the north of its border, the U.S. wouldn't consider such a solution which would fragmentate Afghanistan out of concern for the international implications as Tajikistan in the north is a vassal state of the Soviet Union. Instead, it insisted on uniting Afghanistan which means the warlords of the north and of the south were brought together to create a new state. The Americans believe that the root cause of the Taliban's rise is that the old Afghan government was controlled by the Northern Alliance, while the Pashtuns, who make up the majority of the Afghan population, were not sufficiently represented in it. Therefore it chose to support a number of Pashtun bigwigs, people like the former President Hamid Karzai and military officer Razak, to balance it out between the North and the South and finally take the Pashtun region out of the hands of the Taliban. What in essence is the Afghan government? It is a coalition of warlords. The agents of the northern warlords and the agents of the Pashtun warlords vied for the presidency, often ending up with each calling himself president, forming parallel governments. Finally, the Americans would step out to mediate a power-sharing arrangement, with one acting as president and the other as prime minister. The modus operandi of the Taliban and the Islamic State could be roughly categorized into four levels, two of which are the basic modes, marriage and cooperation, and the other two are more sophisticated ones being merger and dissolution. The Taliban, unlike the Islamic State, switches between the first two basic modes. The Pashtun tribes are like all the prehistoric tribes in the world, for example, Corsicans, Mongols, and Turks. Through one chief's daughter's marriage to another chief's son, in-laws tie the knot, and alliances are formed, who will join forces to fight other tribes. Partnership is forged whenever two groups have a common goal which would automatically dissolve after the accomplishment of the goal and the two parties are free to go separate ways. The Taliban's main warlord forces are formed in this manner. The ISIS signature mode of disbanding the other party and absorbing the former into its own structure is rarely used by the Taliban. Taliban's nature as a regional outgrowth is also apparent in that the western, eastern, and southeastern tribes are not kindred to the orthodoxical Kandahar Pashtuns. 
The Taliban consists of four subgroups, Mashhad Shura in the west, a faction with strong Iranian overtones, Miran Shah Shura and Peshwar Shura in the east, and Quetta Shura in the central area. Only the Taliban of the Quetta Shura is the true Taliban. Although the Taliban is against the warlords, it practices warlordism to an extended degree. Its organization is only a little more closely knitted than the Fisiparous warlord alliances and far from reaching the level of cohesiveness of the Islamic State who has built its own system and provides for all its soldiers and political cadres. Soldiers of the regular Taliban troops will return to their own clans after being discharged. Both the tribes and the Taliban have control over them whose dual allegiance is not exclusive or absolute. The only fully loyal force is the Special Red Unit and the Kandahar Youths, which together account for less than 20,000 men, or a quarter of the entire Taliban troops. The other three quarters are more or less nominal allies of various warlords. If the Taliban do something they are not happy with and they can refuse to carry it out there is nothing the central Taliban can do about it. Naturally, the military training that these tribal soldiers of the Taliban receive is amateurish, except that the military potency of the rival forces, such as the Tajik warlords, is not necessarily more professional, which enables the Taliban to put up a fight. The American-trained Afghan National Security Forces are capable of defeating them. In order to counter the American-trained security forces, the Taliban also had to break from the beyond tribal traditions by training their own elite soldiers, the so-called Red Unit. The Red Unit came into being only in 2016. Before that, the Taliban's army was recruited on a tribal basis, which equates to a volunteer or semi-volunteer army. The Taliban would hand out a bit of reward money to them after the attack on Kabul by scratching up funds from donations by Arab countries, revenues from opium sales, contributions by wealthy merchants in Afghanistan, and financial support from Pakistan. The Taliban does not have enough resources to maintain a standing army. The Red Unit started out with a few hundred men. Its growth is the result of adversary and arms race against the Afghan security forces. Eventually, the Red Unit grew to be a few thousand, as the Afghan security forces also reached a few thousand. The Red Unit was ultra-tribal. Its members are full-time career soldiers provided for by the Taliban throughout life, loyal only to the movement with an exceptionally high mortality rate of about 16%. We should note that tribal warlords fight wars with a very low death rate since most tribal warlords believe that after the battles they will go home to farming or other livelihoods. They are not professional armies, whereas the Red Units and the Afghan security forces are. The casualty rate of the Afghan security forces is not that high, thanks largely to the cover by the Air Force. The Red Unit, on the other hand, has a high casualty rate, about the same as that of the Islamic State of up to 16%, which is enormous. A fatality rate of 10% is already extraordinary for any regular army. Only the most stalwart and death-daring squads could sustain a 16% fatality rate. Of course, such an elite group has to be specially trained and armed at dedicated training bases. Moreover, the special training includes the one provided by various instructors brought in from overseas. Both the combatants and their families enjoy lifelong provisions and welfare. The Taliban cannot possibly afford a large troop like this. But every time there is a key battle, against ISIS or the Afghan government forces, or at a critical location like Kunduz to support an important warlord ally, the Red Unit is deployed. This was the state of the Taliban's military in the later stages. 
At this time, of course, short of money and weapons, in constant danger of being wiped out by the American-backed pro-Afghan government warlords, the Taliban needed and welcomed any aid. And lo, the Islamic State came to aid. Estimated by the number of weapons captured by the US, the Islamic State has at least 60,000 full-time professional fighters, who, like the members of Taliban's Red Group, are fully paid and provided for. 60,000 fighters, plus 200,000 dependents, all registered on the Islamic State's payroll, are underwritten for life. In contrast to the Taliban and Pakistani local warlords who are without any connections or influence outside of the two countries, the IS is an international organization with large and steady revenue streams from Europe and the Levant. Translator's note, the Levant is an approximate historical geographical term referring to a large area in the eastern Mediterranean region of Western Asia. In its narrowest sense, it is equivalent to the historical region of Syria, which included present-day Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, Palestine, and most of Turkey southeast of the Middle Euphrates. In its widest historical sense, the Levant included all of the eastern Mediterranean with its islands, that is, it included all of the countries along the eastern Mediterranean shores, extending from Greece to Cyanaica in eastern Libya. With much more funds than the Taliban, the IS can afford 60,000 standing professional troops, plus 200,000 dependents. On the books, after the Trump administration's crackdown, the Islamic State appears to occupy no territory on the surface of the earth while the Taliban still possesses at least a few provinces. In fact, the Taliban is much poorer, with only a few thousand professional combatants. Whereas, even after losing territorial control, the Islamic State with tens of thousands of permanent troops, is still much more powerful than the Taliban. As they welcomed Al-Qaeda before, the Taliban welcomed the Islamic State coming with money and weapons. But there is no free lunch. Thank you for listening. This is a podcast series produced by Luminous Society. Luminous Society provides you with an alternative historical narrative 